0: Our But he always shows up when the chips are down. That's the kind of stuff I like to be around. Stuff that works. Stuff that holds up. The kind of stuff you don't hang on the wall. Stuff that's real Stuff you feel The kind of stuff you reach for when you
1: fall This is Lee Habib and you're listening to the work of Guy Clark Extraordinary songwriter from Texas Who passed at 74 years of age Songwriter, poet, guitarist, husband, troubadour, craftsman Patron saint of an entire generation of Bohemian pickers is how Robert K. Orman, a great writer about writers in Songwriter Magazine, wrote. He, revered by people like Emmy Lou Harris, Willie Nelson, John Prine, Lyle Lovett, Towns Van Zant, Chris Christopherson, you could just go on and on. All of whom viewed Clark's songwriting, which combined dark wit, romantic optimism, and weary skepticism as the highest form of the popular lyric. And you heard it right there, just in the beginning. And we're going to play you our favorite Guy Clark song in its entirety in just a minute. But Guy talked about songwriting to Songwriter Magazine, and we wanted to have you hear from him what he thought about this art form.
0: I think the majority of my work is something that happened to me. I saw happen to someone else, or a friend of mine told me happened. You know I mean? Uh-huh. And there's a certain amount of theatrical and poetic license you have to allow yourself. You know, people are supposed to like it. That's why you're doing it. You know, it's supposed to be fun. It's not brain surgery. It's heart surgery.
1: It's heart surgery. By the way, Clark was born in Monahans, Texas, on November 1941, raised in his family's shotgun hotel, where he learned about music and life for men like Jack Prigg, the well driller who would later become the subject of one of Clark's most famous songs, Desperados Waiting on a Train. Clark family moved to Rockport, Texas, where Clark came of age before joining the Peace Corps as a young man. After the Corps, Clark eventually settled in Houston, where he would soon become a fixture in that city's growing songwriter community with folks like Towns Van Zandt and Jerry Jeff Walker. Clark met his future wife, Suzanne Clark, with whom he'd stay married until her passing in 2012. They moved to Nashville in 71 and would live there the rest of their lives. And what's remarkable about Clark is, well, he wrote about life. Most of the really good songs are dead true, he told American songwriter. You couldn't make up Desperado's Waiting for a Train or any of that stuff. It had to have happened. To have the song be there. And so we wanted to play, well, just one perfect song by Guy Clark. It has a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. And once this song starts, you cannot stop it, which is why we want to play it in his honor in its entirety right now. Mm -hmm.
0: Passing by a pawn shop in an older part of town Something caught my eye and I stopped and turned around I stepped inside and there I spied in the middle of it all Was a beat up old guitar hanging on the wall What do you want for that piece of junk? I asked the old man He just smiled and took it down he put it in my hand said, you tell me what it's worth, you're the one who wants it. Tune it up, play a song, and let's just see what haunts it. So I hit a couple of chords in my old country way of strumming, and then my fingers turned to lightning, man, I never heard it coming. It was like I always knew, I just don't know where I learned it. It wasn't nothing but the truth So I just reared back and burned I couldn't pick Up and down the neck Man, I never missed a lick The guitar almost played itself And there was nothing I could do It was getting hard to tell Just who was playing who When I finally put it down I couldn't catch my breath My hands were shaking And I was scared to death The old man finally got up said, where in the hell you been? I've been waiting all these years for you to stumble in. Then he took down an old dusty case and said, go on, pack it up. You don't owe me nothing. Then he said, good luck. There was something spooky in his voice and something strange on his face. When he shut the lid, I saw my name was on the case.
1: This is Lee Habib, the life of Guy Clark. Died today. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories where we bring you stories about everything, history, sports, the arts. One of the things we love to talk about is courage and selflessness. And this next story by Alex Cortez is one heck of a selflessness and courage story.
2: Chris Edmonds thought that he had a great dad, but he also
3: thought that he had a
2: relatively normal one.
3: He was my baseball coach, so he was very active in that, loved baseball, and I think he loved the kids more than anything. So he was our head coach, and my uncle was our assistant coach. He played the good cop. Dad was the good (laughs) cop. My uncle was the bad cop, so to
2: speak. Chris's dad served in World War II. He had a diary from his time there, although he didn't say much about it or the war. And so Chris didn't know much of anything,
3: until... My daughter, who was in college at the time, had done a group report for one of her history classes on dad and had used the diary as some of the narrative for a a little short video that they made. And as I watched that video, they just used, the narration was was just word for word out of dad's diary. And it was just, I'd read it before and I'd asked dad When he was living, about his experience, he just never would would share. Like most most men of that day, I mean, he said, son, there's some things I'd rather not talk about. But those words just kind of seared into my heart and moved me. And so one night, about midnight, a friend of mine said, you know, they have records, military records on on people who have served, so maybe you can find out some, some things about your dad. So I was moved by those words, and I also wanted to kind of find out just some basics, you know, when did he enter the service, was it before Pearl Harbor, was it after Pearl Harbor, what units was he assigned to, where did he do his basic training, I mean, I didn't know any of that stuff, so I just googled his name and rank on the computer about midnight one night, and the first link that comes up, which I thought would be maybe the the National Archives or an Army site or, you know, some military site, um, it was the New York Times, and Dad's name and rank, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, was embedded in this article that was written in 2008 by the editor. And it was written kind of reflecting back on the story of President Nixon, stepping down from the presidency and moving back to New York. And the, the article was titled, Richard Nixon's Search for a New York Home. And so immediately i mean that's highlighted dad's name's highlighted and and i click on the article i'm thinking what is dad's name doing in this article in new york times and what does that have to do with president nixon you know i'm like this is crazy so i read the article and it's basically telling the story of how the president wanted to move to new york and no one wanted him to be their neighbor nobody could find him any place to live i think mr rudin was was kind of the donald trump of the day he was the big real estate mogul. He couldn't even find a place for the president to move because nobody wanted him. And it goes on to say that a gentleman felt sorry for the president, basically, and offered to sell his townhouse, which was in a very prominent section of New York, to the president. And the president ends up visiting with all of his family and buying it from him. And so in the context of that story, the reporter just asked this gentleman who happened to be Lester Tanner about his life and found out he served in the military and asked about that. And and basically, in the context of that conversation, Lester said, had it not been for the bravery of my Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, um, I wouldn't be here to do what I did. So, I read that and I was like, who is Lester Tanner? What did Dad do that was so brave? Or Lester's basically saying, I owe my life to my Master Sergeant. The New York
2: Times left this stunning revelation as a one paragraph mention in their article, almost as if it was an off-topic side story that they had just forgotten to take out
3: in their editing process. I mean, you, you would think someone would have read that and go, well, who is this Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds? Let's go try to find out who this guy was.
2: And if it would be anyone, you'd think it would be the same publication. That the New York Times would be excited that they might have just stumbled upon a great story.
3: Well, that has crossed my mind many times is, you know, why did they just kind of leave that, you know, for dead, basically? Just left it alone.
2: Thankfully, it wasn't uninteresting. To Chris. And so he decided to take their job and play
3: reporter. So I began looking for Lester. Been searching for him and tracked him down finally. It it took me about three or four months. Finally found a phone number and was able to call him and talk to him for the first time. And
2: here's what Lester told him.
3: It was 1944, the 106th Infantry Division had landed in France, some 90 days after D-Day. So the division consisted of the 422nd Regiment, the 423rd, and the 424th Regiments, and Dad was in the 422nd, and it was wintertime, so they began a difficult journey across France. But the winter was brutal that year, It's one of the worst on record in Germany and in Europe. When they reached the Chennai Eiffel, which is just kind of a rugged mountain range in Belgium near the German border, they got there on December 10th. And the soldiers took up their places along that 26-mile front, which was really a thin line of Allied troops protecting that area. And Dad's regiment took the forward position. So when the Germans came through, Dad and his men were at the point of the spear. So they took the first brunt of that heavy assault. And then on the 16th, the 422nd was the first to be surprised by the massive German assault. The Germans had 400,000 troops amassed in that area, 1,600 artillery guns, and 1,200 tanks. And the Allied force, mostly Americans, they had rifles and a little bit of artillery, maybe a few tanks, but they didn't have that kind of firepower. Plus, the 422nd had not seen action, so they were green. So the Battle of the began. The Allied forces, they were just greatly outnumbered and outmatched. Dad's regiment was quickly cut off, surrounded, but they continued to fight with all they had. But most of the 422nd were either killed or captured. Dad in his diary speaks of stepping outside for a moment and a bullet whistled by his head and embedding into the building, just two inches above his head. And he basically said, you know, I really thank God that that he spared me. And then later that day, I mean, the battle broke open and Dad and several other men had formed a convoy and was sent by the colonel to try to punch a way out. They thought they'd found a way out and they actually got stopped because the front jeep hit a mine and exploded and blew everybody out of the jeep and they stopped to help and then they were quickly surrounded. He also was ultimately captured along with more than 20,000 GIs during the battle. and The men of the 422nd were stripped of their winter clothes. They were forced to march some 50 kilometers over rugged icy terrain to Karelstein, Germany, where they were loaded on the train. They spent the first night in a churchyard in Blayoff, Germany, where the men, they, they basically slept on top of each other in order to stay warm and not freeze to death. So they They slept in pyramids on top of each other there were several men who couldn't march and if you didn't march you didn't last and so uh, the ones who couldn't make it uh, were shot or left for dead and so they were locked in overcrowded box cars at the train station standing room only no food no water no way out these trains were unmarked my personal opinion is they were unmarked on purpose they should have had a red cross on the top of the trains to signify to any of the Allied Air Forces that this was a POW train, but they didn't. So all the American boys spent seven harsh days, really, between walking and riding in trains, freezing weather, traveling to Stalag 9B, Bad Orb. It was their first POW camp. And they arrived there on Christmas Day. Of course, at Bad Orb, it was one of the worst, if not the worst, German POW camps. There were thousands of American GIs crammed into that camp They were there for about four weeks, and Dad and the other NCOs... Non-commissioned officers. Were taken, and they were sent to Stalag 98, Ziegenhain. So it's at Ziegenhain where Dad became the highest-ranking American soldier there, he was responsible for all the Americans in that camp.
2: 1,272 Americans. And what would he do or not do How would he lead or not lead all of these men? That story after the break.
1: And we continue with the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds.
2: To learn how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds led these men, most of whom he had never met before they were in prison together, and how he saved Lester Tanner's life, we hear from the person who has a brother because of him, Lester's sister, Corinne. The Germans announced the night before
4: to have all the Jewish prisoners all lined up in the front, and they wanted them all to step out. And the next morning, Roddy Edmonds had all the American soldiers that were under his command to come out in front of the barracks. So there was a large group, close to a 1,000 soldiers, lined up in military formation in front. And when the German commander came out, He looked at the group, and he said to Roddy, well, they all can't be Jews.
2: About 200 of them were. The other 1,072 soldiers weren't.
4: So Roddy said, we are all Jews here. And he was shocked, the commander, and he put the gun next to Roddy's forehead, next to his head, and he said to him, if you don't... Have all the Jewish soldiers step out now. Then I will kill you right here. And Roddy stood there, and there was a silence. And Roddy said, according to the Geneva Convention, if a soldier is captured, he is only to, to give his name, his rank, and his serial number. And then he said... If you kill me now, you have to kill all of us, because we all know who you are, and when the war is over, you will be tried as a war criminal. And when he heard that, the German commander, he just
3: walked away.
2: Her brother Lester, a Jew, Survived that day along with the other Jews and was able to come home because of Roddy Edmonds and his courage, his willingness to sacrifice his own life for the lives of others, others who weren't of his same faith. Roddy was a Christian. Lester comes home and one day he invites a friend from the war, Paul Stern, over to their family's home. He
4: came over and my mother had set out the table for them and they, they had lost so much weight, both of them. She had pastries and milk for them to drink and I was in another room and when I came out, he tells the story. Paul does. The French doors opened, he said, and she came out, his sister, and I came out, and I met him for the first time, and he said I fell in love with her immediately, and I always added, well, I, I wasn't so sure <laughs> immediately.
2: And as you probably guessed by now, this wouldn't be the only time that Paul and Corinne would meet. But uh, that was Paul's story. Two years later, we were married. Corinne was able to marry the love of her life because Roddy saved Lester's life, allowing Lester to do something so simple as bring his friend Paul into their home. And then this story gets even stranger. A very interesting part was that when
4: my granddaughter... Diana was in college. One of her classes, she had to do a project, something concerning a hero of hers. And it was also a program run by a World War II veteran, was a professor. And he wanted, if they had any information or anything related to that. So she had written this report. It was titled, My Grandpa Went to War. So that's when he really started to talk. He
2: didn't really discuss it with the children or grandchildren. Or with his wife, Corinne, for that matter. But his granddaughter opened him up. Maybe he did it just to help her. Or maybe enough time had passed, and he was ready.
4: So we had that report, and in that report, he finally did come through with everything and tell the story.
2: The story that he, too was saved by Roddy Edmonds.
4: He said that confrontation only lasted a few moments when it actually happened at the POW camp, but he would remember it the rest of his
2: life. And this was also the very first moment that Corinne learned that her brother Lester was saved by Roddy. Neither of them told the story to anyone Their family only learned of it because of a granddaughter's school project, and the world only learned of it because Lester sold his house to Richard Nixon. You know, in my readings during the
4: years, I came upon the quote that said, if you save one life, if you save one life, you save the world. It's very meaningful because if you really think about it in depth, the fact that he saved these Jewish soldiers, they would have never married, they would have never had children, grandchildren, and my brother has great-grandchildren. I have five grandchildren. No great-grandchildren yet. But when you really think about it, it has a lot of depth to it, and you realize all the people that would have never been here that have produced and have done great things in the world after that
2: and to close back to roddy's son chris on the animating force in his dad's life that led him to do what he did
3: he was very active in the local church but he was also active in a singing ministry that he had it was just a he never made any money at it but he he sang at a lot of revivals and a lot of church functions there's one song in particular that I'd heard him sing several times, and it's not a widely known song, but it is a song that he sang several times, and typically he would give a word of testimony before he sang any song he would, but particularly on this one. He would let everybody know he was in World War II, he was a POW, and that's where he felt called to sing for God, because he he was a man of faith, even as a young man. You know, he surrendered his life to Christ as a teenager. He never told me any of this either. I've just been picking this up through my research and, and talking with folks that knew him growing up. So he came to Christ as a teenager, and he was the real deal. I mean, it, he really followed Christ. I think that's why he stood up for his men in that camp. It, it was a sense of duty as, as being their, their leader, but it was also he had surrendered his life to Christ, and he had already died to Christ and come alive to him, and he, he believed in his heart and his mind. He was never going to die anyway. If he leaves this planet, he's going to go to a better life to be, live with his Lord. And so um, he was going to do what was right. He's going to do what God would do. He's going to stand up for his men, and in the face of death, I mean, he'd already died, so you can't do anything more to him, so I'm, I'm going to do the right thing. But this song is uh, called I'm a Private in the Army of the Lord. I'll just read you a couple of lines to it. Verse one is, I have just enlisted in the service of my king, Christ my lord and king, blessed lord and king. Tis a royal service, and with gladness now I sing as I march against old Satan's war. Jesus is my captain, and he leads me all the while, leads me all the while, leads me all the while. I am not a hero, but I'm in that rank and file. I'm a private, in
1: the army of the lord and great work alex and thank you to everyone who contributed to this remarkable story master sergeant roddy edmund's story all of the lives he saved my goodness all the lives he saved here on our american stories
5: I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I'm a soldier in the army. I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord. I'm a soldier in the army. I'm a soldier Soldier in the 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 army Army of the Lord. Lord] I'm I'm a soldier.
1: This is Our American Stories and you were listening to Lyle Lovett singing I'm a soldier in the army of the Lord and no one knows better about that cross, that intersection between country music, gospel music and roots music better than Lyle Lovett and what a beautiful rendition of that song. We'd heard the lyrics earlier and we're going to continue telling the story of Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds because it doesn't stop where we left off. On January 27, 2016, Edmonds and three others were posthumously honored at the Israeli Embassy in Washington, D.C. The occasion, the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the four that were honored had all been declared righteous among the nations, a high honor from Israel's Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, to non-Jews who saved the lives of Jews during the Holocaust. The last two segments, we learned how Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds saved around 200 Jews. And the others that were honored at this ceremony, well, they did just the same. One that was honored, Lois Gundon of Goshen, Indiana. She volunteered in 1941 to work for the Mennonite Central Committee in southern France as an English tutor. She established a children's home that became a safe haven for Jewish children, children she convinced the parents of to part with, or that she helped to smuggle out of the country to a nearby internment camp. Lois protected these children from the hostile French police, and she was eventually detained by Germans. She was released in 1944 as part of a prisoner exchange program. And other honorees, Valerie and Mirella Zabeski. They were a Polish couple who safeguarded the daughter of a Jewish woman hunted by Nazis after fleeing the ghetto. President Obama was at this ceremony to honor these people. So was Steven Spielberg, and these are real heroes, folks. And Spielberg, the director of the acclaimed movie Schindler's List, about Oscar Schindler, who saved 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. Spielberg is also the founder of the USC Shoah Foundation, which has created an archive of over 55,000 video testimonies of survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators of the Holocaust. And we're working with them and bringing so many of the stories they have there onto our airwaves for all of you to hear. But the best speech of them all that day came from Israel's ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer. He had these words to share with the people there
6: the Holocaust poses two difficult questions for all of us. Questions that challenge both our faith in God and our faith in man. First, how could a compassionate God allow the Holocaust to happen? Second, how could seemingly civilized societies produce so many individuals who could perpetrate such horrific crimes? In trying to grapple with these two questions, perhaps we should consider two other questions, two much older questions. They are two questions recorded in the Bible. They are the first question asked by God and the first question asked by man. After Adam and Eve disobey God in the Garden of Eden, we read that they hide in shame as they hear God's voice. Ayeka, where are you? God asks. The sages of the Jewish people teach us that where are you is not a question God is asking for his sake. It's a question God is asking for our sake. It is a question meant to spur introspection, to instill in us an appreciation that we are moral agents in the world, that we, are responsible for the moral choices we make. Ladies and gentlemen, the six million Jews killed in the Holocaust were not the victims of an earthquake, a hurricane, or some other random natural disaster that would understandably turn our eyes to the heavens for answers. The six million Jews killed in the Holocaust were murdered by other human beings by human beings who had a choice. So perhaps the question, where are you, Ayeka, a question that so many asked God during the Holocaust and which so many of us have been asking God ever since is not a question for us to ask God, but a question for God to ask us. Where was man during the Holocaust? Where was the moral compass of the millions who simply looked the other way as the Nazis and their army of willing executioners perpetrated such monstrous evil. Rather than honestly confront this damning question, people instead tried to excuse their inaction. Too often they justified their failure to accept our moral obligations to one another by hiding behind. Another question. They answered the first question asked by God in the Bible with the first question asked by man in the Bible. It was the question asked by Cain after murdering Abel. Hashomer achi anochi. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Ladies and gentlemen, we are all here tonight to honor four people who were their brother's keeper. We are all here to honor four brave individuals who saw their actions not as an act of courage, but as their most fundamental moral obligation to their fellow man. And that is precisely what makes them true heroes. They are heroes, not simply because they had an answer to Cain's question, they are heroes because they had an answer to God's question. To the question, Ayeka, where are you? These four had an answer. In an age of so much indifference, they acted. In an age of so much cowardice, they were courageous. In an age of so much darkness, they were a source of light. So in honoring these four righteous souls tonight, let us not only recognize their remarkable heroism. Let us hope that their light will inspire us to live our lives so that we too will be able to give the right answers to those timeless questions. And in so doing, build a better future for all humanity.
1: And such beautiful, such eloquent words. And thank you, Ambassador Dermer, for those words. And as we've learned in the Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey story, as we learned in the Martin Luther King story, the source of power of these men, the insurmountable things they did, did not come from man. And too often as we tell these stories, we don't give the source the divine-inspired source that allows these men to bring a little bit of heaven down here to this earth. And that's what these people all did. And by the way, among the 200 Jews saved by Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, Paul Stern, Sonny Fox, Skip Friedman, Hank Friedman, Lester Tanner, and we will assemble as many names as possible and add to that list, and we're going to try and talk to as many people as possible. And by the way, so many survivors are now dying off, and to capture their memory and to capture these stories, well, we're dedicated to doing that here on Our American Stories. The men who served with Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds in World War II, like Lester Tanner, used to call him the old man. They thought he was 28 or 29, even 30, while they were only 18 or 19. And it wasn't until Roddy's son Chris and Lester met that he shared with him that his dad was only 21 and 22 years old at the time, just a few years older than Lester. Lester thought that he was older because of the way Roddy carried himself, because of the way he led. And by the way, in this age, when our 20-year-old's are acting like 10-year-olds, and our 40-year-olds are acting like 20-year-olds. This story shows what 21- and 22-year-olds are capable of, the beautiful, remarkable things they're capable of. In his diary, Roddy himself reflects that war is revealing of a man's character, writing, quote, I learned men even better than before. Some were good, some were bad, some were better, and some were worse. He also wrote, quote, When you're in battle, you're not worth much after the battle. But Chris said that he never showed that pain to his family, but that it was apparent to all that Rodney loved life and lived every day to the fullest. Rodney was saved by his Savior, and while they were imprisoned in Germany, Rodney made sure that the men he led could also draw on their faith as a source of strength. In his diary, he had a list of the religious services that he tried to conduct. He had Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish written down. Two of the three were not his faith. Roddy Edmonds' story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American mm-hmm. Stories, and when you hear that music, it's time for our final thought segment, and we do that about people who are about to die, eulogies, a death's a part of life, and sometimes we got to go there. And today we have a contributor reading his article entitled, How My Father's Cancer Diagnosis Saved Our Rocky Relationship, and the writing comes from Willie Lynch of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a scientist and a university administrator. He wrote this piece for his wife's best friend that had lost her husband to cancer. As he sat thinking of what his wife's friend was going through, he thought of what his own mother went through when his father died. When he thought of his friend's kids, he remembered what it was like when he lost his dad. He wrote it down and sent it to the Boston Globe, and when they accepted it, he sent the check they gave him to his wife's best friend. When Reader's Digest published it, he sent her that money too. Here is Willie reading the story
7: nothing stays the same for long things and people change often for the worse it seems but once in a while very much for the better I grew up on a small farm living a life that I took for granted I had a dog without a leash mountains in whatever direction I looked and awoke to the call of pheasants in the alfalfa fields. My father also worked in the city as a welder. He was quiet, distant, you might say. He was not highly educated, but smart, with an engineer's way of looking at problems. He was a man made of leather, brass, and chewing tobacco who tried to teach my brother and me useful things, including respect. He had a temper. I did not like him very much. One day I came home from school and his car was already there. Once inside, I was told by my mother that he didn't feel well. His back hurt. My father never missed work. In fact, when he came home, he went to the barn to work even more. I remember peeking around the corner at him as he lay on his bed in the middle of the day. I was in elementary school. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer. It starts in the cells that normally make antibodies for the body to use in its immune response against infections. When those cells become malignant, they make antibodies like crazy. As the cancer grows, the person who has it shrinks. The disease saps the body's energy and the antibodies cause problems for other cells and tissues. Bones eventually look like Swiss cheese, and when they break, they never heal. For the last year of his life, my father's entire day consisted of rising from his hospital bed in the living room and slowly walking to his chair to sit and think. He was predictably in that chair when I came home one day during the ninth grade. I do not remember where my mother and brother were, but the two of us were alone. He asked me to sit down. What followed? still moves me these decades later. He told me about his life, his family growing up, what it was like in the Pacific during World War II, his loves, his heartbreaks. It was like a pipe had burst, his inner self rushing out to me in a great flood. He had been speaking for maybe an hour or more when I realized that he was doing more than telling. He was asking to be forgiven. All it took was that understanding within me and I forgave everything immediately. When he died, I didn't return to school for a few days. My biggest dread coming back was gym class. It was poorly supervised and bullies ran the show. True to form. On my first day, I was standing there in my shorts when an all too familiar voice bellowed, Lynch. It was a guy who had given many of us a few lumps over the years. I turned to face him and said, What do you want? The other boys didn't say a word as they waited for the beatdown. I heard your dad died, he said. Is that true? I quietly replied, yes. He didn't punch me. He didn't even move. Instead, he said, I'm sorry i was shocked i'm sure i cried those two words are how i have remembered that kid ever since what do you do when your enemies reveal that they are also human i think you either forgive and move forward or hold on to resentment and live in the past I'm certainly not glad that my father got sick but at the same time i realized that if he hadn't i might never have come to love him it's the darndest thing
1: it is the darndest thing and thank you willie for those words for sharing and this originally appeared in the Boston Globe. This piece made its way to the Reader's Digest and it's making its way to you, and we'd love to hear your final thoughts about your loved ones. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Willie Lynch's story, in a way his dad's story, and that bully's story, here on Our American Stories. There's
5: a killer on the road His brain is squirming like a toad Take a long holiday Let your children play If you give this man a ride Sweet mammal he will die Killer on the
1: road This is Our American Stories And back in the day, opportunity called people of courage to chase the sun into the plains of the new American frontier. These men and women shaped a nation and birthed a new American mythology. Today, with the passing of time, the myth of the notorious highway robber Black Bart is coming face to face with reality. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of Black Bart.
8: I got old blue.
9: Ralphie's fantasy encounter with Black Bart in the 1983 film A Christmas Story leads one to believe that Black Bart was some desperado.
5: Well, what have we got here, folks?
8: Well, we figure he's Black Bart, uh, Ralph.
10: Well, just me, and my trusty old Red Rider carbine action, two on the shot range model air rifle. Lucky I got a compass in the stock. Well, I think I better have a look here. No oh, worries, not.
9: In the 1870s, there was a dime novel that was loosely based on Black Bart's true story. A Christmas story author, Gene Shepard, read this novel as a kid and included Ralphie's reincarnation of Black Bart as a desperado.
5: Okay, Ralphie, you win this time, but we'll be back! Adios, Bart! But if you do come back, you'll be pushing up daisies!
9: But Black Bart's real story is far more fantastical than Ralphie's imagination. To tell the story of America's most successful and eccentric stagecoach robber is one of America's greatest storytellers, an author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Roger McGrath is also a regular on the History Channel. Let's begin with Dr. Roger McGrath and the story of Highwayman Black Bart. Black
8: Bart was the most successful highwayman in American history. For more than eight years, this would be from 1875 to 1883, he preyed on stagecoaches, robbing 29 of them. Ah! No other road agent could match Black Bart's record. Moreover, Black Bart was a gentleman. He always treated everyone courteously and took only the express box. He left the passengers untouched. Black Bart probably got away with upwards of $30,000. That would be something like $2 million in today's money. Black Bart's real name was Charles Bowles. He was born on a farm in upstate New York in 1831. His parents were recent immigrants from England. Little is known about his early years other than he grew up as a typical farm boy. At age 18, he and his older brother David left the farm to join the gold rush of 1849. They first prospected on the American River and then throughout the motherlode country. Life in the diggings was rugged and many a prospector died from disease, accident or gunplay. David Bowles was one of those who met an early end. He grew ill and died in July 1852. Here's Black Bart biographer Gail Jenner.
10: Charles was devastated. He had been the one to truly want to come out to California. He felt guilty. He was a restless soul. That played very heavily into the choices he made later on. Charles
8: continued to prospect, in fact, for another two years. And then he drifted back to the Midwest. In Decatur, Illinois, he met and married a girl named Mary and settled down and began raising a family. When the Civil War erupted, Charles enlisted in the Union Army. For more than three years, he served with distinction. He fought in several major battles and was severely wounded in one of them but returned to fight again. He even served under General Sherman on his brutal march to the sea. Here's Civil War historian, Harry Jones.
6: To march with Sherman's army, you certainly are fit.
0: He was very demanding of his soldiers. And being able to understand what trails will get you where, what trails could be easily ambushed and therefore you set up defenses for them at the proper places. That would be of value to someone who later becomes known as Black Bart.
8: Charles rose to the rank of first sergeant before this last battle, and then just before the war ended, was commissioned as second lieutenant. After the war, his gold fever returned. He left his wife Mary and his daughters in Illinois to go off to the mines of Montana and Idaho on foot. Every so often he sent Mary a letter saying that he'd be on his way home soon. The last letter Mary received came from Silver Bow, Montana in August, 1871. Why he stopped writing after that, we don't know. As the months went by with no further word, Mary grew frantic and finally sold the family home to raise money for her search for her husband. Meanwhile, the missing husband continued prospecting. But as word as Montana's riches spread, the competition for claims
9: increased. Well, you can thank Mr. Wells and Mr. Fargo. They just bought me out. Seems like they <laughs> aim to buy up the whole
0: territory.
8: Large companies rushed to capitalize on local strikes and eliminate the competition. They'd buy up businesses and all lands surrounding successful claims. Here again is Gail Jenner.
10: There was mining going on in various sections of Montana. He did have a claim where he was in competition with other people also setting up claims and there was a lot of violence that was occurring around him. Mr. Bowles!
9: Welcome, gentlemen. What can I do for you? We want to buy your claim. (laughs) No, thank you. No,
0: thank you. Good day.
7: Doesn't look like much is coming.
0: There'll be plenty just as soon as the water comes up. Good day.
8: It'd be a shame if it didn't. Wells Fargo began consolidating its stage lines for new mining towns in Idaho, Utah, and Montana. Rumors of the company going into the mining business make Bowles suspicious. Just days after receiving offers for his claim, the water supply suddenly dried up. His claim was now worthless. Bowles is convinced it's no coincidence. Here's author of the American West, W.C. Jameson.
3: What Wells Fargo did is divert the stream from which Bowles was panning the gold to where he was forced to
0: abandon his gold mine.
8: Many historians believe that this was the moment he set his sight on one of the most powerful companies in the West, Wells Fargo making the company out to be responsible for his misfortune. A hard-working miner and former union soldier with dreams of striking it rich made a bold decision to extract revenge. In 1874, Bowles left his claim and moved to the cosmopolitan hub of Northern California. Consumed by revenge, Bowles completely broke ties with his family cut himself off from the past and reinvented himself. He moved to San Francisco, all the while nursing this anger, this hatred toward Wells Fargo. In preparation for his revenge, Bowles did his homework.
0: I watched the stages from a second camp, far from my home camp, to ascertain the exact time they passed. I found them to be at the same spot every
8: morning at 7 a.m.
10: All over Northern California, they were shipping lots of gold from one place to another. They had over 3,000 miles of stagecoach roads. It was a big target for thieves.
1: And when we come back, we're going to continue with this riveting story The real story, the story behind the story of Black Bart. And by the way, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story, so we continue with the story of Charles Bowles, aka Black Bart. Let's pick up where we left off. In July
8: 1875, a stagecoach with a Wells Fargo Express box was working its way up a steep grade on the way from Sonora to Copperopolis in the Motherlode country. Just a few miles short of Copperopolis, a hooded figure suddenly jumped
0: easy from behind easy. a boulder. Put down that box,
8: please. Well, the demand from this hooded figure was reinforced by a double-barreled shotgun aimed at the stagecoach driver. The robber's head was covered by a flour sack with two holes cut for the eyes, and even his boots couldn't be seen. They were covered by thick socks to avoid leaving tracks. As the driver grabbed the express box, the highwayman yelled an order over his shoulder. If he dares shoot, give him a solid volley, boys! The driver glanced up at the hillside behind the highwayman and thought he saw at least a half dozen rifle barrels aimed his way. It's called a Quaker gun trick. Used in the Revolutionary and Civil Wars, it's named for the Quakers, who, like bulls, oppose violence. The trick uses sticks to look like guns and logs to look like cannons to fool the enemy into believing they're facing a force much larger than they actually are. With a real sense of urgency, a driver threw the express box onto the road. The highwayman quickly removed several bags of gold coins. A frightened woman passenger tossed her purse out of the stagecoach and into the road. The highwayman picked it up, bowed, and returned it to her, saying
0: in a deep and resonant voice, Ah. Madam, I have no desire of your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo.
11: What are you reaching for, friend?
10: Charles has hope sticks through the bushes so that it appears that there could be other guns around. Just give him what he wants. He's got his mask on, he's, he's got a duster on, he's got his gun pointed. He was an enigma. He was a very hard man to figure out.
8: Good day to you, sir. Thank you, kindly He disappeared into the brush and escaped on foot over 120 miles through rugged terrain, through the mountains, and back to San Francisco. He returned to high society in plain sight, where he developed an alter ego. He called himself Charles Bolton. Bolton's reputation grew as he became known as a successful gold prospector and socialite. Here's Old West historian Chris Entz.
12: Charles Bowles went by Charles Bolden because it sounds very sophisticated. It has a certain dignity associated with it. He is as comfortable living in the wilderness as he is in the city. Yes, sir. Worship Circumstances
8: compelled me. I yielded to the temptation of crime only after enduring severe struggles from which I had no control. Following his first robbery, Bowles took odd jobs that pulled him away from the city and gave him access to new targets.
10: He was trying just a little bit of everything. He tried school teaching for a while, which would have been unnatural for him because he was intelligent, he was sharp.
0: (laughs) Now let us turn to the case of Summerfield and that notorious bandit, Black Bart.
12: He's incredibly well-read in addition to shakespeare that kind of thing he also reads the sacramento union and in the union paper is a story written by an attorney who does make up this character named bartholomew graham or black bart
8: charles bowles adopted the name and transformed into highwayman black bart following black bart's first robbery wells fargo detective james hume was put on the case Here again is Gail Jenner and historian Marshall
10: Trimble. James Hume chose to become the kind of person who would never quit. He has an obsessive, compulsive kind of desire to make things right.
3: Gentlemen. This is the beginning of this detective period. When there's a robbery, you don't just get out there and look for horse tracks. It gets much more sophisticated. Technology and such is starting to change as to how to track these guys down. And
0: this is what Hume is uh, really adept at.
11: Welcome to school, boy.
8: Hume was one of the great detectives school, of the Old West, but this
11: Black Bart character had him stumped. Gentlemen, our efforts up to this point have been unacceptable. He's making a mockery of us, and I will not stand for that.
10: Hume begins to put together that this man is quite capable of covering long distances in between the robberies. He knows that it's not a multiple-person job, that this is a a lone man.
8: Beginning with a second stagecoach robbery, Black Bart would leave behind a verse or two of poetry. Hume, a man as cunning and restless as the bandit himself, read it.
11: I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor, and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of... Goats. Black buck. Poet. The He's mocking me.
10: He's mocking me!
8: Jung didn't know what to do with witness I... testimonies.
11: What was his behavior, his demeanor? Did he threaten you or take any of your personal belongings? No, sir. He was polite. Said please and thank you. And that's what's left
9: of the cash box over there.
8: The public had doubts about Detective Hume and Wells Fargo. Hume took it personally.
10: Wells Fargo is putting more and more pressure on James Hume. The newspapers are having a field day. There were lots and lots of articles about who is this black bar and people are ridiculing both James Hume and Wells Fargo. They're becoming a joke, and so they're determined now to try and figure this out, and lots of pressure is coming from lots of different directions.
8: Here's a quote from Hume in the San Francisco Examiner in 1884.
11: I refuse to buy a romanticized image of Black Bart as fabricated by the press. He is a fraud who is Robin Hoodwinking a gullible public. Jim
8: Hume began to piece together a physical description of Black Bart.
0: Bart was armed, but he didn't shoot back, though. Nope.
11: Not his style.
0: No horse track. And he escapes on foot.
8: As Black Bart's stage robberies continued, the price yeah. on his head increased. Wells Fargo offered a $300 reward. state of California chipped in another $300. And the U.S. government... 200. The $800 total was really quite a sum back in the 1870s. Something like $80,000 today.
1: And when we come back, what happens next? And what a story, by the way. Feels a little bit like The Great Gatsby with a little bit of Jack London in it. It's a thriller. It's an American classic Never knew the rest of this story, and you're about to hear it. Charles Bowles becomes Charles Bolton. The world, at the time and now, knows him as Black Bart. This is Our American Stories. The story of Black Bart continues after these messages. And again, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. to this song Black Bart and that's from heavy metal band Volbeat by the way they've opened for Metallica their vocalist and guitarist Michael Paulson told Classic Rock Magazine why he chose to write about this particular highwayman quote Black Bart was definitely one of the most interesting characters we all know Doc Holliday so I wanted to bring in one character that people could see and think yeah we know that guy I didn't want to bring in Billy the Kid and Wyatt Earp or people like that because while they're interesting, I don't think we needed another story about them. And that's why we're bringing you this story. And now for the final installment, the final chapter of the life of Black Bart.
8: Black Bart's luck nearly ran out on his 23rd stagecoach robbery. The stage was on its way from Laporte to Oroville when Black Bart blocked its path.
9: Easy, boys. Easy does it.
0: Keep those hands where I can see them. Nice and easy. Would you be so kind
8: as to throw down that box? I'll get it right now for you, sir. Instead, The Wells Fargo guard swung his rifle around and fired. Black Bart leaped into the brush and ran for it. They didn't know it, but the bullet fired at Black Bart creased the outlaw's head. A fraction of an inch change in trajectory would have spelled the end for Black Bart. On a Sunday in November 1883, Black Bart's luck finally did run out. Early that morning, a stagecoach pulled out of Sonora Bound for Milton. The driver of the stage was a veteran of the run, Raisin McConnell. At Reynolds Ferry on the Stanislaus River, McConnell picked up a passenger, 19-year-old Jimmy Rolieri. Rolieri operated the ferry, but it was still early in the morning, and he thought he might go up the hill a and do a little hunting. When the stage began the long climb, Larry jumped off with a Winchester rifle in hand. Stage had nearly reached the summit when a hooded highwayman leaped from the brush. He drained a shotgun on McConnell.
9: Throw
0: down that box. I can't. Please. Bolt it to the floor. Well, it's lucky for you I brought my tools. Easy does it. We wouldn't want to spook the horses. Now come down off that stage, friend, and start walking and don't stop.
8: McConnell tried to signal Larry, who was casually walking up the road. Finally, McConnell got his attention. Just then, the highwayman straightened up with a sack full of gold. Larry fired. Blackboard. Highwaymen stumbled, ah. but managed to spring into the brush and disappear. McConnell reported the holdup. The local county sheriff, Ben Thorne, and his deputies were soon at the scene of the crime. They found a number of things highwaymen had left behind in his hasty departure. There was a black derby hat, two paper bags containing crackers and sugar, a pair of binoculars, and a handkerchief. Once back in his office, Sheriff Thorne inspected the items left behind at the scene of the robbery he noticed some badly faded lettering on the handkerchief. He turned the handkerchief over to Wells Fargo Detective Jim Hume, who in turn gave the handkerchief to Harry Morris. Hume had hired Morris six months earlier to do nothing but work on the robberies of Black Bart. Morris had recently retired as Sheriff of Alameda County, and now he had his own private detective agency. He was one of the great lawmen
11: of the Old West. Fresh sign.
10: When uh, James discovers the handkerchief, he was delighted. And as he examines it, he sees the mark, FX-07. And he knows this was, in fact, a laundry mark.
11: This man must be found.
12: Hume decides we're going to have to track this laundry mark.
11: Take your men and leave no stone unturned.
12: So they go to 93 different laundries in the San Francisco area.
9: Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes. Is that your mark? Uh, yes, that's our mark. From one of our customers? C.E. Bolton. He's a local gold prospector.
8: Since Hume thought that Black Bart lived in San Francisco, Morris began his investigation there. Now, under the guise of a business proposition, Morris was introduced to Charles Bolton. Bolton looked every inch the mine owner he purported to be. He was dressed in an expensive tailored wool suit and a bowler hat. He carried a walking stick, a diamond ring was on one finger, and a heavy gold watch was suspended from a gold chain. He was handsome with deep-set blue eyes, He stood about five foot eight and was ramrod straight. He looked anything but a robber. Morris managed to get Bolton to an office where Jim Hume waited.
4: So word on the street is you're quite the successful gold prospector. Tell me, Mr. Bolton, where are your mines located?
8: Well, if it's one thing I've learned, sir, it's not to disclose too much information to a perfect stranger.
9: Mr. Bolton, I'd like you to meet Detective James Hume. Minutes
8: later, a captain from the San Francisco Police Department arrived, took Bolton into custody. At the police station, Bolton was placed under arrest. He feigned astonishment and asked for what possible cause was he being arrested. Hume answered, Because you
11: are Black Black Bart, Bart. the infamous highwayman and poet,
0: I had a premonition that this would happen today.
8: Aren't you the lucky one,
12: Charles Bowles? Wanted them to know that it was him. And to be able to tease and to play with the people that have been chasing him and trying to get at this, it gave him pleasure. You do want somebody to know.
8: Buck Bart pleaded guilty to the last of
0: his robberies. Whereas the said CE Bolton is convicted of robbery by his own admission, he is therefore ordered, adjudged, and sentenced to San Quentin. The state prison for the period of seven years.
8: He became a model prisoner. Take him away. And was released in January 1888 after serving a little more than four years. He was then 57 years old. Reporters waited
9: outside for his release. Black Bart, are you going back to your life of robbing stagecoaches? Oh, I've given up my life with crime. Are you gonna go back to writing poetry? Did you hear me,
7: son? I said I'm done committing crimes.
8: <laughs> After being released from San Quentin, Black Bart returned to San Francisco and there he was offered the opportunity of appearing on stage in a theatrical production. Somebody wanted to take advantage of his notoriety, but he refused. Jim Hume had his men shadow Black Bart, but suddenly one day, early in March 1888, Black Bart gave him the slip.
0: Bowles was a pretty smart guy.
8: It is likely that he knew that that Hume was following him. Hume perhaps had a hunch that maybe Bowles might return to his nefarious ways. Reports had Black Bart in several different Western states, then in Mexico, Canada, Japan, China, and finally Australia. None of these reports though was ever confirmed. Black Bart, America's most successful highwayman, had simply disappeared.
1: And what a story. And if you want to hear it again or share it with friends, again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Boy, this story has it all. Guy's comfortable in the wilderness, in the big city. His brother dies early. He blames himself, tries to make a living honestly, feels like a big, bad business had taken advantage of him. And by the way, we love telling stories about good businesses, but sometimes there are some bad ones. And he felt like Wells Fargo had cheated him out of his stake. And so he was going to take it back. What a story and great work, as always, Greg Hengler. And by the way, Black Bart and James Hume. Reminds me of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Two people joined at the hip forever. And they are. Not sure why this isn't a movie or hasn't been, but it should be. This is Lee Habib. Charles Bolton's story. Charles Knowles' story. Black Bart's story. They're all the same guy. Here on Our American Stories.